0: The words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. I was at a funeral during the week of Holy Trinity and during the funeral we sang How Great Thou Art, It was a wonderful hymn. But one of the verses stuck out for me. It's the verse which goes, When I think of God... His son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died, and take away my sin. As we were singing it, maybe it was because we were at Holy Trinity, or maybe it's because I'd read the Gospel reading for today, or at the other readings, I began to wonder what my burden was that had been taken away. And what was my sin? What is sin? What is the sin that Jesus died to take away from me? It's a pretty important concept, sin. It pops up all over the place. We heard it in every single reading this morning. And, to be honest, it's the heart of a lot of what Jesus is on about. And certainly is at the heart of his conflict with the Jewish elite and the Pharisees. And this morning we heard John talk about everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We heard Peter say, repent of your sins. And in Luke, in the Gospel reading, we heard Luke, or heard Jesus say, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Sin is pretty pivotal. So, what do we think when we hear that word, sin? What do we think it's all about? It's a word that's used a lot, but I don't know that we actually think a lot about what it means. What is sin? There's a group of people who don't like the word at all, so try to avoid it altogether. There's other people who are very clear about what it means, and I think for most of us we just use it and a whole lot of assumptions come into play whether we like it or not. But we don't actually think about what is sin. There's actually a lot of debate about what it means. I've just finished reading a book about Cardinal Jorge Bogoglio, better known to us as Pope Francis, which is a fascinating read in itself, because as you read it, you learn all about Argentinian history and quite a lot about recent Catholic history. I discovered, for example, that half the Catholics in the world now live in South America, and that South America is now seen as the source church for Roman Catholicism rather than Europe. And I was really surprised... To hear Benedict being described as the one who laid the foundations of the reform that's currently going on, and that reform is significant, and who laid the foundation for Jorge Bogoglio's election as Pope. He was the one that freed up the bishops' conferences and allowed the South American bishops to actually meet without the Roman Curia telling them what they were to discuss and what their decisions were, which is how Pope John Paul II operated, you may meet, here's your topics, here's your decisions, uh, just put a little signature at the bottom and send them back when you are finished. So Benedict operated in a very different way. Most of us would never have seen that. Anyway, that's all by the by, I could go on for ages. Most of us here, I would think, would see Francis as quite a good man, maybe a great man who's revitalized the church. And we might be surprised, for example, to hear that for a number of Roman Catholics, he's not such a great man. Because for them, he doesn't talk about sin very much. And by sin, they mean stuff around sex. He doesn't talk about morality. He doesn't talk about who can have sex and when you can have it, And all that other stuff. And he doesn't talk about all the other, what they see as moral issues that afflict the world. He's too busy talking about the poor, which they don't see as a moral issue. He's too busy talking about, if you want to experience God, then you have to go and live among the poor and work among the poor. Because amongst the poor, you will find God at work and you will have your faith revitalized. And they're going, enough of that let's get on to the real stuff sin one of my joys when I was in the national youth role was that I got to go to Polynesia quite a bit but that was also one of my frustrations because youth work there spent a lot of time telling the young people really that if you're a Christian you're not allowed to smoke and you're not allowed to drink or do drugs and you're not allowed to have sex that was it That was the gospel in a nutshell. That was sin for them. No smoking, no drinking or drugs, no sex. It was a little ironic given how much all of those things were going on around us, like in the youth, that were part of the youth groups. So when pregnancies appeared, they went, oh, how did that happen? I wonder how that happened. Maybe if we talked a bit more about that. Sin had been narrowed down to those things, nothing else. That's the problem really. I think often we think we know what sin is and it becomes this little narrow category. Morality or no sex, no smoking, no drugs, no drinking. And it's defined in a way that can make us, those who, well actually in the drinking and things that didn't kind of, well I don't do drugs and I don't I mean, I do most of those, but the drinking I just had to keep quiet about. And, but it's defined in a way that makes us feel pretty superior, superior. Well, look at me. I'm one of the moral ones. I'm one of the upright ones. I'm one of the righteous ones. Which means you lot over there are the sinners and you're the ones that need Jesus. Not me, because I'm already there. I'm one of the righteous. All of this then colours how we read the passages we read this morning, and how we understand what the Gospel is about, and how we understand what Jesus is on about. I think it's fair to say that that same confusion and range of understandings is also found in the Scriptures, and certainly there's a debate, and we can see that clearly in the Gospels. One of the groups that Jesus clashed a lot with over this issues is the Pharisees. I'm currently reading a book by Kenneth Bailey who is a, well, a Bible scholar, I guess you might call him American, although he spent nearly all his life living in the Middle East, living and working. His parents lived there so he grew up there and he's uh, worked as a um, lecturing in theological colleges and Bible colleges uh, for most of his working life. And so he brings a lot of cultural knowledge to his interpretations, particularly of the Gospels. Uh, but he's also spent a lot of time sourcing translations and commentaries in Syriac. Now, we all know that the early church operated in Latin, because that's, Ro- that's the Roman stuff. And we all know they operated in Greek, because the New Testament was written in gr- Greek, but we don't really know that actually the third major language of the early church was Syriac. still is. Syriac is the language of the Middle East, across Iraq, Iran, up into Armenia and Georgia, and then down through North Africa into Ethiopia. In fact, most of the early churches were Syriac-speaking rather than Greek or Latin. And so when you read the translations and the commentaries in Syriac, you're reading them from people who lived in the same culture as Jesus did. Now, we think translations are, like, there's no interpretation in a translation because you just kind of take the word and you translate it into the language you're going in. But actually, translation work is full of interpretation because you can never translate one word Directly from one language into the other you have to work out what that word means and then work out what it means in your language and translate it across and so the translations, especially the early translations into Syriac and Arabic are often different from our English ones because they come out of the same culture they don't have to do quite well they just understand the words differently from how we understand it So I'll talk more about that next week when we get to shepherds. Now, we understand the Pharisees as, well, I don't know how we understand them, but I guess I often understand them kind of like Anglican clergy. There's a clear boundary around them. These are, not a negative way, but, you know, like there's entry requirements and you get chosen and then there's an initiation process. You get ordained and then you're an Anglican priest And I kind of understood the Pharisees were the same. There were some tests, you had to do some training, at the end of which you became a Pharisee. And everyone said, oh look, he's a Pharisee, he passed the test. But in fact, anyone could be a Pharisee. A Pharisee was basically someone who had a zeal for obedience to the law. There weren't any entry requirements, there were no badges. It was just, you could call yourself a Pharisee if you liked But within the Pharisees, there was a small group. They're kind of elite shock troopers, we might call them, who were called, and this is a translation, the friends or the associates. And there were tests, and there were entry requirements. And they were a very distinct group. And they were the uber zealous ones for adherence to the law. And a lot of Jesus' conflict is with these friends or associates. And so Kenneth Bailey says... Sometimes when Jesus uses the word friends, it's a very deliberate thing, because he's actually saying, well, friends, they are the friends, the associates, the uber-zealous Pharisees. So, now, for these guys, they were the righteous ones, because they were the ones that fully adhered to the law, which meant everyone else, were sinners, and in fact, the term "sinners" really meant people of the land. It wasn't that they weren't very moral? It was simply because, well, as people of the land, how could they be expected to know the law as well as the friends and associates did? And if you don't know the law fully, well, then you can't keep the law. So you are, by definition, a sinner. It's not that you're a particularly bad person, it's just, well, you don't know the law, so you're a sinner. So basically, everyone, apart from the friends and associates, were sinners. So when that word is being used in the Gospels, that's who it's referring to. Everyone, basically, apart from this little small group off to one side. Now, being the righteous, being the people that kept the letter of the law, that also meant they were ritually clean, and so that meant that they had the friends, the associates, had to be very careful about who they mixed with and who they ate with, because that's where you could get into all sorts of ritually difficult problems, and so a whole lot of the problems that these people had with Jesus, was he kept eating with the wrong people. They also had another problem with Jesus, and that was, he called himself the Messiah. But they were very clear about the fact that the Messiah was going to come for the righteous. People like them. Who did Jesus spend his time with? The people of the land. The sinners. He was not living up to their expectations. And not only did he spend time with the sinners, the people of the land, but he ate with them, therefore making himself ritually unclean. But worse, when he ate with them, and when he invited them to where he was to eat, that was much worse, that meant that he was honouring them and blessing them. In fact... One of the interpretations for the Beatitudes is that has been suggested is actually the word blessed be should be translated as honour, honoured be, which in an honour society means these are the people of honour, not you wealthy people who think you're righteous and all good, these people are, these ones. So what does all this mean? What does Jesus do in the face of all of that? And what does Jesus understand righteousness and sin to be? Well, I said last year that one of the ways we can understand Jesus is as a rabbi. And using Rob Bell's material, I talked about uh, how the word yoke is actually an interpretation of the law. So, when a Pharisee was, uh, when a rabbi was offering an interpretation of the law, they would call it a yoke. So, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, he is saying, This is my interpretation of the law. And he described his yoke as easy, light. It wasn't a hard yoke. And then he used some passages out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus to summarise the law, or he used summaries that were already at play. And so that summary said that the law was all about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind by and loving your neighbour as yourself. We know that well. So if a sinner is somebody who doesn't keep the law, A sinner is somebody who doesn't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind by and loving your neighbour as yourself. Now for the Pharisees, especially for the friends and associates, their neighbour was other friends and associates, people like them. So they could say, well yes, I keep the law, I do love my neighbour, my fellow friends, associates. So Jesus then told a parable In Luke's Gospel, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, Jesus redefines neighbour as, well, everyone. Everyone, including all the people of the land who were called sinners, all the foreigners, including the occupying army. The Romans. Including even Samaritans. And they came right at the bottom. Even them. Even them. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. By and loving even them. Loving them with the same love and passion Jesus displays on the cross. When we do that... Then we are righteous. And when we don't, well, we're sinners. So, who here is willing to say that they love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind by loving their neighbour as themselves? Well, I think that means we're all sinners. Welcome to the club. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about sin. And that has all kinds of societal and economic and political implications. When we love our neighbour as ourselves, When we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind by loving our neighbour as ourselves. I remember I took a service somewhere and I talked about some of these things. And at the end of it somebody came up to me because I said, how do we worship God? Well, how do we love God? And he came up to me at the end and said, I know how we love God, by worshipping God, which I think he meant by singing songs. And I went, really? That's it? That's all God wants out of us, just to sing some songs? I think actually God wants more than that. I think God wants us to reframe how we operate so what do we do with all of this? Well, firstly, I think we need to let go of our ideas about sin and righteousness, even the ones we don't think about, the ones that just sit behind there and that inform without us ever actually paying attention to them because I know I have them. I know that because when I sang that hymn, I went, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. And then I went, I did not even know what I think about what sin is. What do I, I think I don't agree with? What is it that I think I think? There's a... Things that we just assume that we don't pay attention to. In a sense, the invitation of Easter is to leave these ideas about sin and righteousness at the cross. Jesus died to free us from those ideas. These ideas which hold us down and limit our vision because they're too small. And actually, a lot of the time, these ideas about sin actually prevent us from loving God with all our heart and soul and mind. Because they prevent us from loving our neighbour as ourselves. And the gift of resurrection is that we are offered the chance to start again, to see the world afresh, to see ourselves afresh, and to start understand sin and righteousness afresh. We are invited by the risen Christ to see ourselves and the world we live in anew, to have our minds opened to the mind of Scripture, just like the disciples had their minds opened, as we heard this morning. And, as I say in the pew sheets, to have our imaginations shaped by God's unfailing love. We are made in love. We are held in love. We are restored in love. When we hold that, then we can truly begin to love our neighbour, all our neighbours, as we ourselves are loved and in doing so love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. So what do we need to let go of this morning? What ideas about sin and righteousness hold you down? What ideas about sin and righteousness prevent you from loving God with all your being? By loving your neighbour. How is your mind being opened by the risen Christ in love? this morning.